I am Jeremy Dean QC. I have been practicing as a criminal defense barrister since 1983. This series of podcasts spotlights the criminal justice process, a cornerstone of our free and democratic society. I will also be looking at the effects of coronavirus upon the criminal justice system. I will be speaking to prisoners, prisoners' relatives, campaigners, lawyers, and others. Together, we will take a global look at the criminal justice process under the scourge of coronavirus and generally. This is Criminal Justice on Trial. Welcome to Criminal Justice on Trial. Today, I'm, I'm really very pleased to welcome Celia Ouellette, who is Chief Executive of Responsible Business Initiative for Justice. And I'm going to ask Celia um, initially to tell us a little bit about herself. But first of all, thank you very much, Celia, for joining me today. Thank you so much, Jeremy. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, just tell us a bit about your background, if you would. Yeah, so I, I'm a, I am a death penalty defence lawyer uh, by trade. I've been practising in the US for uh, about 15 years, uh, working on predominantly uh, pre-trial death penalty cases. And, uh, and in, in terms of being a, a death penalty defence lawyer, um, is, is your role to try to sort of fend off the death penalty once it's been imposed? Yeah, so the majority of my work over the years has been in that pretrial stage. So in the pretrial stage in the US, you are usually, you're, usually your goal is to avoid trial at all costs and prevent your client from ever getting the death penalty. Um, and, and usually that, uh, that uh, success in those cases looks like a plea deal for something that is a less than death outcome. So a term of years, um, or more typically, uh, a sentence of life without the possibility of parole, which I realise, uh, speaking to someone, you know, in the UK and talking about this in the UK, it sounds like a um, an outrageous goal to be satisfied with. But that is the way with with most US death penalty. Are, are you are you a trial lawyer as well? Yes. Yeah. Generally speaking, do you appear as a defence attorney in cases where the death penalty is in prospect? So no longer, no longer because I run an organization that is a, a campaign organization. Um, RBIJ is a, is a campaign organization that works with businesses, predominantly trade leaders, other economic actors to engage on criminal justice issues. So it's been several years uh, now, Jeremy, since I actually was on my feet. Right, right. Yeah. Right. Well, that must have been a, you know incredibly challenging and amazingly interesting um, experience. So, you know, I'd love to talk to you much more about that on some other occasion. Um, and, and only only because, you know, there are certain issues I'd like your views on today. Just before we move on, in general terms, what kind of people then would you would you have defended? It's a really good question. And I think it it's so relevant to the time that we're in right now, because if I had to describe my clients in one word, and, and I know this might not be popular, but I would describe them as vulnerable. Um, I, I'm trying to think of a client that I worked with ever that, um, and I should add that in, in the latter part of my career, I've been a consultant on death penalty cases, which means that I was sort of a mile wide and an inch deep and worked on hundreds of cases rather than just one or two at a time. And I'm struggling to think of a client that didn't have one or more of 
um, mm. serious childhood abuse to the point of torture, um, grave mental illness, um, or some other form of um, severe limitation in the way that they um, s have survived the world. You know, I was just working a little bit on an old case yesterday, and my, my client in that case um, had an IQ of 56. And it took us seven years to convince the prosecution that he shouldn't be eligible for the death penalty. Yeah. Well, c c can I just say, say this? I mean, it's, it's really quite fascinating that you've practiced in the US and I practiced for almost four decades in the UK as a defence lawyer. Because when people ask me what kind of people I defend, my answer tends to be exactly the same as yours, which is vulnerable people, even though my work has predominantly been homicide for a very long time. So that's an extraordinarily, you know, interesting, um, you, you know, meeting of, of experience, isn't it? Yeah, certainly. I think there is something that ties those that end up caught in, in the criminal justice system wherever they are in the world, really. Yeah, well, as I've said, um, it would be absolutely fantastic to sort of dwell much more extensively on, you know, your your experience in that respect on, on a, a future occasion, hopefully imminently. But can I can I just come on more to the sort of mission um, that the Responsible Business Initiative for Justice have have set themselves? Could you just just tell us what you know, what the principal objectives of your uh, organisation are? So, so as I mentioned earlier, it, it's a campaign. It's a campaign. REOJ is a campaign organization, um, and we work with with businesses, with trade leaders, with those economic actors to um, to advance issues in the criminal justice system. Um, in the very kind of simplest of terms, we work with the Goliaths to protect the Davids. And and are the Goliaths interested? Yes. Yes, significantly uh, more than I had actually even hoped. I mean, you've heard a little bit about my background. I mean, I don't come from a business background. I hired an incredible team that do. Mm. Um, but, you know, I started with what, what may have been a naive belief that if we could get humans to see what I had seen in, in systems of criminal justice, that it would be sort of impossible to unsee that. Um, and I think we are also at an unprecedented time where businesses understand their role in society, the importance of trust in their brand, um, the importance of, of stepping in where governments are failing. And there are some amazing organizations and businesses that are working in the space, you know, ranging from those sort of classic ethical corporations like Lush Cosmetics and Ben and & Jerry's all the way to JP Morgan, Bank of America, you know, traditionally very conservative businesses like Coke Industries, um, recognizing that there is a problem with our systems of criminal justice and that they can have um, an impact on fixing that. Well, that, that's, that's, you know, incredibly interesting because I suspect that most people, you know, have, have no idea that the business world um, ha has any interest whatsoever in the criminal justice process. I interviewed recently Sir Bob Neill, who is chair of the Justice um, Parliamentary Select Committee, and he was saying that one of the problems that, um, that, that he has found is that criminal justice is not a sexy topic. I just wonder, how do you manage to engage organisations at the level that you've told us about? 
I think that that sort of um, public appetite for for care and concern and, and a spotlight on criminal justice issues is changing. I mean, Kim Kardashian is now speaking out about criminal justice issues. Um, I think anyone with Netflix that uh, is quarantined anywhere in the world right now is learning something about criminal justice issues. Um, anyone who's got access to podcasts is listening to podcasts like Serial and Making a Murderer. And 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 I, I do think that there's an increased appetite and public understanding in why fairness in systems of justice is important and how this is going wrong. And I, I think the second part of my answer, Jeremy, would be that problems in systems of criminal justice are part of bigger ecosystems. Um, you know, especially as we recover from from coronavirus, as our as our as our co- country's economies stagger back to their feet again, poverty will either be deeper uh, or not, mm. depending on what businesses choose to do. You know, the, the the racial divide will either be worse or better, depending on how businesses try to rebuild. And I think when when we think about issues like poverty and racism and how humans are treated by other humans. If you don't address problems in our systems of criminal justice, you are not holistically addressing those problems. You think businesses understand that increasingly. And in that background, is is the contribution made by these businesses principally financial? So for us, that is not uh, that is not the goal of our organisation. Um, I think it's so important that businesses are you know philanthropic donors to um, to important issues, including including criminal justice reform. But actually, we primarily work with businesses um, to use their voices and use their leverage um, to create change, to call businesses to account, to educate the public, um, you know, to do things like uh, earlier this week, we worked with um, a number of businesses to put together a, a joint letter calling um, calling on Robert Buckland to release certain vulnerable inmates in the UK. Um, so we know that you know, if I if I look back to my days as a, as a death penalty defense lawyer going one case at a time in Alabama or Kentucky or wherever it was, I alone could do a certain amount. But if you team me up with 40 businesses with a platform and a voice, suddenly we're pulling people out of the river uh, at, a, at, a, at a much stronger rate. And perhaps even we're swimming upstream and figuring out why so many people keep falling into this river and drowning in it. You know, I'm, I'm no doubt the public would be absolutely fascinated to hear about the work you do because it's definitely, uh, I'd have thought, uncharted territory for for so many people. Can I, can I move on then and ask you about your letter to Robert Buckland, the um, Justice Secretary? That that was written, I think, at the very end of March. Yes, that's right. And have you had any response to that? Well, I mean, we've seen the response, which is that Buckland has... Uh, now released certain appropriate, I suppose, particularly appropriate uh, inmates. So, uh, as you know, you know he's he's released pregnant women and those with babies, and he's also just announced in the last sort of twenty four hours uh, that he's going to uh, consider 
assess for for release those with only two months left on their sentence in an effort to to decarcerate to reduce prison populations essentially yeah i mean you're you're and obviously those are developments which you know a lot of people have been calling for in your your letter um you called for the release of the elderly or people who are medically vulnerable, people with six months or less remaining, pregnant women and all waiting, all people waiting for trial for nonviolent offences. So um, some five very clear categories of people. It doesn't appear at the moment like the, the government are releasing most of those people. Is that your understanding? Yeah, yeah, there's there's work still to be done. I, I agree, there's definitely work still to be done. But, you know, these things do take some time and there are technical um, considerations to be taken into account for how you release people and who is then responsible for them when they're back in the community and to, to risk assess them. You know, I, I, I'm not taking my uh, foot off the pedal here, but, you know, I think that I think we can clearly see movement from from uh, from Robert Buckland, whose initial position was the absolutely would not be releasing anyone to recognising that it was absolutely critical that we did release some. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But but in terms of the categories you identify, I mean, the elderly, for example, yeah. people who are medically vulnerable. Yeah. Um, I mean, there are two sides to that argument, aren't they? On one view, it can be said, well, look, these people should be released. They're not, on the face of it, a threat to the public. On the other hand, as, as you and I both know, um, very often the public's response to this kind of issue, well, uh, they've been authors of their own misfortune. I mean, how, how do you meet that, that argument? Yeah, I think, I think part of, a part of the, the answer really is like when you look under the lid of what's actually going on in prisons and jails, it's not really what the public think, think it looks like. So for example, if we say we need to release the elderly, um, I don't want to offend anyone here, but let's let's say elderly is people over the age of 50. That those, that those are the people that are coming into the medically vulnerable category for exposure to COVID-19. In the UK, that's nearly 14,000 people. Mm. Mm. Um, so, you know, for, for, for those who are over 50 or who have parents over 50 or, you know, and they kind of look at that category of people and wonder, how dangerous are they? How violent are they? Could 50% of them be released? Could 10% of them be released? Yeah. And I think that the reality of our prison system, in, in definitely in the US and, and certainly also in the UK, is that it's so bloated and it's so overwhelmed that it becomes impossible to make individual decisions, um, sort of tailored decisions to individuals. You have to look at entire categories. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a really interesting point, I think. And... Um, possibly one of the reasons why progress is so so sluggish. Um, can I can I just because I want to move on to, as we approach a conclusion to the question of, of prisons and the current state of prisons. But most of your experience has been in the US. I mean, what is your understanding of the state of prisons under you know threat of coronavirus at this time? you know, calling on my US experience, it's hard to kind of underplay how much of a fire this is, um, how much of a burning fire this is. In the world right now, the, the, the place with the highest infection rate globally is a prison in New York. 
It's Rikers Island prison in New York has the highest infection rate in the world. And I think what's also important about that and, and sort of calling on your earlier question, Jeremy, about like what people understand of what actually prisons and jails look like, Rikers Island jail is predominantly used for low level non-violent offenses. In the US, uh, around half of the prison population, uh, prison, prison admissions in, in, at the state level are people who have technical parole and probation violations. And that is predominantly what Rikers Island is used for. So if you're out on parole or probation and you commit a, a technical violation of that, so not a new crime, basically, something like missing a drug test uh, or failing to check in on the phone, um, you know, when you're supposed to, you can end up back in Rikers Island jail. And so for failing to, 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 to make a, I mean, at this time, those of us who haven't missed a phone call are heroes. We're all kind of scrambled and all, all over the place. But if you miss a check-in with your probation officer in New York and end up in Rikers Island jail, you know you're being sealed in with about 250 infected inmates and 250 infected correction staff. I mean, that's just a mind-blowing um, scenario. And, and clearly, you know, up and down this country and possibly in the US and anywhere else, you know, it, it's an unknown quantity. I mean, how, how, how in, in the civilised free world in the year 2020, how, how do you think humanity allows that kind of situation to subsist? I don't know if I can even answer that question. I mean, the, the drivers towards where we've got to such a crazy level of mass incarceration in America, uh, you know, uh, there's, there are multiple, but actually th this point about technical violations of parole and probation is a very significant number of them. And I do wonder if in, you know, in 2020, whether we'll start looking at this differently because we have to. We can't keep putting people in Rikers Island. So what if we don't? Does the sky fall if someone misses a urine test for, for, for drug testing and then they don't go to prison for six months because of it? Do they continue to offend? But, but it, you know, and yeah. Go ahead, Jerry. No, I was just going to say that, it, 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 you know, clearly we don't have time now to dwell upon cases such as the Harvey Weinstein case, but it does appear to the objective observer that the US criminal justice process is getting out of control, that the level of sentencing, that the obsession with punishment um, is sky high. Is, 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 is that right, would you say, Celia? I mean, it's, it's so right, Jeremy. We've, when you set the ceiling at execution, the, ceiling, the, the sentencing ceiling is we take your life. So the more merciful option is we lock you away for life without the possibility of parole, yeah. which literally means exactly what it sounds like. You will never, ever, ever go before yeah. a parole board. So, so, so that's the star prize, as it were. Yeah, and we do that to children, Jeremy. The, this is, America is the only country in the whole world that sentences children to life without possibility. So how so I, I'm sorry to ask you a, a similar question to the one that I've just asked you, but obviously, you know, the US is the most powerful country on Earth. I mean, are you, Celia, you know, it's, it's, it's not an easy question, I'm sure, but are you able to try to rationalise how it is that such a powerful, you know, progressive country in so many respects uh, approaches issues of criminal justice in this sort of retrograde and almost barbaric fashion? 
Yeah, it's 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 been an incremental political process, you know. And and when I think about the UK, I worry about this in the UK too. In that it it there were, there's been a political narrative that is not based on facts or research or data or statistics. That is, if we lock them up, we make society safer, and that's been internalized at state and federal level for years in America. And I think the challenge is coming now. And this is you know, why we work with businesses because we know that businesses have incredibly loud voices and are great educators. And so we need everyone from Kim Kardashian to Jamie Dimon from JP Morgan Chase to be re- explaining that this lock them up and throw them away the key uh narrative and politics doesn't actually make communities safer i mean just one stat that shows this so clearly is that states that have the death penalty have higher homicide rates than those without Mm. god that's that's extraordinary isn't it absolutely extraordinary um and again uh, that's a you know a topic that i'd really like to come back to speak to you about in detail in in the future i think if, if we could just you know the background of what you've just been telling us about US prisons just come finally on to um, the current situation um, I mean y- 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 your organization has written to Robert Button and there has been a degree of response um, I mean if you had a message for Robert Buckland in the wake of you know very recent developments the d- d- degree of prisoner release and things moving slightly what, what you know what would that message be today this government in the UK right now is seriously trying to reduce the number of corona, reduce the spread of corona, and seriously trying to get us all out of our houses and back to our work so that shops and restaurants and businesses can open again, then we have to rapidly decarcerate. Otherwise, prisons are going to become the furnace that gets us all sicker. Okay, well, you, you couldn't have been clearer in that response. Um, just wrapping things up and sort of coming back to where we began um in terms of the the work that that you are doing i mean what's your feeling about whether businesses are more or less likely to be responsive post coronavirus that's such a good question and it's a question that you know i immediately asked myself when we all started to get locked in our houses and, and everything was shuttered um, over the last two two or so weeks, we've been reaching out to a number of the businesses that we've worked with over the years and, and kind of taken their temperature. And Jeremy, honestly, the response has been overwhelming in that businesses recognize and understand that the pressure has never been more on them to, to be leaders and that consumers and employees will never have scrutinized them more for whether they are recognizing and prioritizing the needs of the most vulnerable in our communities. And um, while I think that many businesses, like many people, are still just trying to figure out which way is up right now and are not necessarily all you know, signing on to letters, although 40 or more of them did, which is wonderful, I do think that the future holds a greater political and public role for businesses on social justice issues right well that's um you know a, a, a very very positive response and i'm i'm personally quite surprised at 
the reaction you've had, but obviously, you know, delighted. Um, so you, you sound quite positive about the scope of, you know, for, for potential for a responsible business initiative for justice once this sort of logjam is all over. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we, we will never have worked harder, <laughs> is my kind of feeling for what the rest of the year looks like. I think, I think we will never have worked harder in that the role of businesses in recovering economies will never have been greater. And, and I also, you know, much as I think that businesses, the businesses that we've worked to are committed to this, I do think that businesses are going to be pulled in a hundred directions. And um, to continue to explain that criminal justice issues need to be part of their kind of social agenda as they rebuild takes work and education. Um, but, you know, we're, we're pretty dug in for the long haul. So um, as long as my, my team can keep up the stamina that they currently have, I think we're, we're going we're gonna to see reward from that hard work, I hope. Well, you and your team have shown, you know, extraordinary stamina so far. I mean, personally, I'm hoping that after this short break, if I can call it that, we're all going to have renewed momentum. I mean, it's been really genuinely, truly fascinating speaking to you. There are so many sort of tentacles to the experience you've 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 had and, and what you're doing. So, you know, I want to, you know, uh, stick with what I've said and hopefully speak to you about a number of other things in the in the future. So I'd like to congratulate you on the work that you're doing and just to say thank you so much for giving up your time to speak to me today. Thank you for listening. Join me again next time for another episode of Criminal Justice on Trial. Please don't forget to subscribe and if you like what you heard give us a good review and if you have a story to tell get in touch Tweet us at justice underscore on trial.